Hello and welcome to the inaugural Flavor Wire podcast. I am your host, Tom Hawking. I am here with my esteemed and erudite co-host, Mose Halperin. Mose, how are we? We're good, Tom. And How's we... that for edition? <laughs> <laughs> and we are joined this week by uh, Judy Berman, Jonathan Sturgeon, Alison Herman, and the redoubtable Sarah Seltzer. Um, we have many things to talk about this week, but uh, we thought we would start with Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer. Alison, does she, does she <laughs> have a racial... All of Amy Schumer. <laughs> <laughs> All of Amy Schumer. Does she have a racial blind spot? Um, I think that's kind of a reductive phrasing when it comes to comedians. I don't think she's historically been very sensitive to race. Um, so I guess the reason why we're discussing this, um, just to back up a bit, is there have been a couple essays that have run the last couple of weeks... One was literally called Amy Schumer is not as feminist as the internet thinks she is. Um, and it was run in the Daily Dot uh, and later picked up by The Week, which its thesis was exactly its headline. Um, and it cited a few things, but probably the strongest point was pointing out some historically like pretty terrible jokes that she made about race. Um, and then later uh, there was sort of a more general piece just about her career that ran in The Guardian by Monica Heisey. Um, that was really like 80% like favorable or at least like agnostic about what is happening in Schumer's career right now. Um, but then it sort of had like a qualifier towards the end that accused her of having a blind spot about race. Um, and a few of the jokes that are under discussion are um, during a stand-up bit that's both appeared in her touring act and was in one of the stand-up segments of the first season of her show. She said, I used to date Hispanic guys, and now, but now I prefer consensual. Um, when she was hosting the movie awards for MTV, which is much more recently, she made a crack about how um, Gone Girl is like what one white woman and all Latinas will do if you cheat. And it was just... Really? Yeah, I think it's sometimes like all of her... So the piece I wrote was that it's sort of in line with the very obvious drawbacks of her stand-up persona, which is this ignorant person who says things that I think when it's done well, you're clearly supposed to laugh at her. Um, You know, it's it's not supposed to be like an endorsement of what the character is saying so much as the jokes on the character for thinking it's okay to say it. Um, And you certainly see like parts of that in her show. Uh, like one of my favorite sketches is so is that one I think it's called So Bad where they're all sitting around a table and the joke is that like they are kicking themselves over eating food while they're simultaneously saying things like oh like I went into a burn ward and set off some smoke just to see how they react but like I ate like four potato chips and I'm so bad Um, (laughs) so I think she does a lot of that sort of like writing characters that aren't supposed to be sympathetic and then when she fails to make that clear it can often be really bad. And I think, um, historically her, like they're not her most acute jokes. Mm. Um, but nor do I think it's something that's like a glaring flaw in her comedy. So do we think this is a case of the internet as it is want to do, you know, conflating subject material, addressing a certain issue with endorsing that issue? I think that it's more a product of the internet lionizing these cultural figures of the moment, particularly the feminist internet as, you know, the messiah and the new voice of feminism and everything they do is great. And then, of course, inevitably because they're human beings and also because they're not activists, but in fact entertainers, um, there's an inevitable backlash. This was, there was only a matter of time before this happened. 
um, with Amy Schumer because of her sort of meteoric internet fed rise to popularity mm. but it's sort of the same thing that happened with Patricia Arquette after the Oscars um, just sort of to a lesser degree and I just think you know there, there, there's a danger on both ends there's a danger in, in taking an artist who occasionally does some really astute social justice commentary in their work and then turning them into a figurehead mm-hmm. for the movement um, particularly because I mean Amy Schumer some of her her humor is not feminist. Some of it is plays around with gender norms, which is actually okay and often funny. But I wouldn't say that because maybe one sketch per episode critiques that stuff means that that's her, you know, her sole role and her and her vision. And mm. she's just someone who's sort of she's aware of gender stuff and she plays with it. And sometimes it's reactionary and sometimes it's progressive, <laughs> um, and that's okay. So I think that's more what this is a product of is this cycle of of you know deifying and then tearing down these figures. Right, I mean about maybe two weeks before this, and maybe we had touched on this before, I don't quite recall, but um, there was that long piece in the Atlantic that was declaring comedians our era as public intellectuals Mm -hmm. um, and sort of uh, giving them this almost like Sontagian vibe of, of importance, but not just like both both in so much as their personal lives are relatively um, on display and people care about them, but then also in, in the vein of them being the people that we look to for, uh, yeah, in matters of social justice, in matters of um, just defining how we see society. And it is interesting because it, it was very much, a, it, if I recall, that article was very much trying to, yeah, place that, that very, very heavy burden of living up to something that otherwise like like social critics were doing and that's partially what comedians are doing but like first and foremost obviously it's just that they're trying to make people laugh and with that comes a lot of trial and error and yeah I definitely think that this particular backlash is kind of a more aggressive incarnation of something that was already worrying me about the public response to Schumer's humor which is sort of this like often implying that she's funny because she's right or what makes her show good or funny is because she makes these um sketches that are making fun of rape culture or making fun of um men's expectations in, in dating and i think you know when it came to kurt metzger who's actually a writer on the show and a stand-up uh talked about this a lot in his uh wtf wtf with mark Marin interview um when you actually go back and watch the Friday Night Lights parody, Football Town Nights, it's obviously great and I think sort of subversive that she chooses to point out that there's a historic affiliation between football culture and rape culture, but when you, some of the best laugh lines don't actually have anything to do with politics. They're her just very accurately parodying Connie Britton and mm. the dialogue on that kind of show and the, the look of it that's just very accurately captures what Friday Night Lights looks like. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's sort of dangerous to say, like, that just because someone has good politics, they're funny, or they're only funny because they have good politics, when I think it can help humor to be, you know, more perceptive and subversive, but it's definitely not a one-to-one type of deal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I guess in some respects that's like a kind of a backlash to the whole idea that humor has to be po- politically incorrect and, you know, saying the things that shouldn't be said because that's hilarious, um, where that is frequently neither funny nor interesting. Yeah. Hmm. 
Um, Alright, so on a, on a lighter note, um, summer is here and that means lying on the beach and reading um, and hopefully venturing into the water if it's not too cold, which it usually is. What are we all reading this summer? Jonathan Sturgeon, literary editor. Well, I, I, earlier I published a list of the trashiest, most unrepentantly trashy beach reads and that was pretty good. It featured a lot of like self-published erotica and stuff <laughs> like that, you know, stuff I will read for research purposes only but was, was chuck tingle on that <laughs> no it was it was a lot of um bad boy related stuff bad boy billionaires and sadly i'll just say it sadly there was a lot of or maybe not sadly there was a lot of stepbrother based erotic <laughs> but i don't for me when i when i go to the beach or when summer comes around and things are less stressful, that's actually when I like to dig into really big canonical books. Like, you know, there's a new translation of uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky out, which sounds like a terrible thing for the beach, but it's actually, that's usually what I plan to do in the summer is read those big books, but. I mean, at, at the risk of um, outing myself as a complete self-parody, I spent last summer, like, trying to read Thomas Piketty on the beach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> accompanied yeah. by a beer. Well, yeah. there's also that whole blog, Infinite Summer, that happened a while ago. I remember, like, Colin Malloy wrote a blog post for it, which oh, is, God. like, yeah, that's not even self-parody, that's just... <laughs> I mean... I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of beyond self-parody, bless him. Yeah. I love Colin Malloy, but um, that is a very typically Colin Malloy thing to do. Seriously. Um, um, what are you going to read this summer? Well... Uh, I guess my summer project has been kind of trying to read a little more genre. Um, I just went on vacation for a couple weeks and I read my first like fantasy series in a very long time, which Did is um, Lev, Grossman's, <coughs> Lev Grossman's The Magician's Trilogy. Yeah, cool. I heard wonderful things about it. Um, probably the most convincing blurb I've read was it's like if Harry Potter went to grad school, <laughs> um, which is not inaccurate. Uh, so it's very, it's kind of meta, which is probably why I liked it. It's a lot about how kids get really obsessed with fantasy series as kids. There are a lot of like references to Harry Potter. Um, the main fantasy world is a very obvious reference to Narnia. And it's, you know, the kids were all obsessed with these Chronicles of Narnia-like books, and then they eventually find out it's real, but when they're adults and they act like adults and they swear and they have sex and they do like normal things that you don't really read about in C.S. Lewis. Um, and it was a really great summer read just because it was simultaneously like a objectively good well-written book but also just incredibly addictive um and i took a stab at a spin on the detective genre paul oster's new york trilogy i don't think i'm going that far (laughs) into that territory but i think next up i plan on reading uh kelly link's latest book of short stories cool what do you got sarah well, I did go to the beach last week, and I read, I think, three or four kind of beach reads. Um, I'm not going to say, it's not chiclet, but they were all what we'd call, I think would be called upmarket commercial fiction for women um, in a row, one each day. And then I found myself at a bookstore looking for a Henry James novel, <laughs> because I couldn't take it anymore. And I ended up not buying a Henry James novel, but I bought this book, I Capture the Castle, which is a cult classic um, reissued British novel, very eccentric and delightful, um, about uh, this sort of genteelly poor British family living in the ruins of a castle, and these American boys move in next door, and you can sort of imagine what ensues. Um, so, um, so that was a really nice change um, from the 
the slew of contemporary lady books that I enjoyed reading on the beach but needed a break from immediately. I, I am continuing to be self-parody by intending to finish the latest David Graeber um, with a beer on the beach, possibly listening to Leonard Cohen. Uh, it's very good. I'm like halfway through it. Um, the first two essays were great. The third one I'm sure will be great also. I love David Graeber. You all should read it. Most. what do you got? Um, I'm currently reading The New World by Chris Adrian and Eli Horowitz, um, which I was especially interested in uh, because it is a collaborative piece of fiction and I have attempted many times with different people to write co- collaboratively, uh, hmm. just because otherwise it can get really isolating and especially if no one's reading it, then it's hard to figure out exactly what you're doing until you have um, yeah, that type of surveillance. So I, I'm trying to see the success of this particular project. Um, I believe Eli Horowitz has in the past done other collaborative pieces, um, though this, this piece with Chris Adrian, who did the Children's Hospital, I think. Is this Jonathan, do you know if this is his first? I think it's his first collaborative. With him, yeah. But this um, year has a lot of collaborative. There, there are, I've never seen so many novels written by two people. Yeah. It's just like a new thing. Yeah. It's really interesting. And, and I mean, thus far, stylistically, it, it doesn't seem like it wanted to uh, draw too much attention to that. It's not as though um, different sections or different chapters are, are written in voices that... I mean, the interesting thing is, and I guess I should look into this, is that the nature of the story is that it's uh, a couple um, the male part of the couple is um, uh, decapitated at the beginning of the novel for uh, cryogenic freezing purposes Um, his head is kept Uh, his wife isn't so happy about it because he signed up for uh, this program of uh, this cryogenic program like without her knowledge Um, and so she's left to live in the present and then he wakes up in the future and so there, it is like um, this bifurcated narrative, and uh, I mm. guess the only way that I would think that there was a differentiation between the two voices is if one of them wrote each one, but thus far I don't know if that's the case. Mm. I took a collaborative workshop at my, um, at my grad school, and it was, it was taught by two novelists who were working on a collaborative novel, and it was hilarious to want to listen to them try and teach collaboratively too because they were definitely like an old married couple <laughs> they were very very snappish with each other but they were but also delightfully collaborative and they actually they got a book deal for their for their story so that will be another collaborative novel that comes out next year um, but it you know there's a huge appeal in it isn't there because um, it is such a such a lonely and solitary process but the trick is finding someone who is of the same level of control yeah. that you are, which might not be easy. <laughs> um, Alright, last beach read, Judy. Um, so I finally started reading Knausgaard's My oh. Struggle <laughs> books, um, and I'm only about halfway through the first one. I keep getting interrupted, but yeah. Um, By life. Yeah, uh, life, but yeah, I love it. I love Scandinavian things, um, and it is very smart about time and how meaning is made in lives and um, it's also just a really good story for not really being about that much. <laughs> um, I guess the biggest book of the summer that we should talk about obviously is the, the Harper Lee that has been discovered or possibly rediscovered. Jonathan, what are we expecting from it? Well, it's, so it's, it's set 20 years after To Kill a Mockingbird and Scout, who 
is in one sense a child in To Kill a Mockingbird, although I, I always have to remind people that she, the narrator of To Kill a Mockingbird is an adult Scout Finch. Um, but she, it's 20 years later, she's roughly 30 years old, and she comes back to Alabama to see her father, Atticus. Um, and so beyond that, we don't know much, except for that it probably has something to do with the Civil Rights era, which is really kicking into gear around this time. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also, I think, the most pre-ordered book in its publisher's history uh, maybe we'll find out maybe in history hmm. um, and you know I I don't know like, you know there's a lot of speculation a lot of controversy I think I'll, maybe that might be put to rest this week they might release a photograph or a video of her uh, showing that she's not senile I'm guessing I've, I've you know put my feelers out there I've heard that mm -hmm. um, and so maybe people will just be able to enjoy it and read it for themselves and decide whether it's good, which mm -hmm. I think is ultimately the what we want. I'm I'm wondering what you're thinking about the fact that we're clearly going to have a huge culture-wide conversation about a literary novel, which doesn't really happen that often. Yeah, it, yeah, I think that's true. I think we, you know, we can have kind of water cooler conversation conversations about television and cinema, especially television nowadays, I think. Um, but this is, I mean, you know, millions of people potentially are going to read this in a short amount of time. And it's going to be, I think, more controversial than people think because, you know, Atticus Finch is, in a lot of ways, America's ideal racial justice character, and he's white. And hmm. so I think that we're going to have to, we're going, I think we also might find, I, this is a bit of a prediction that Atticus may be not as, he, he might not be as progressive as we always thought. And I think that might be part of the new book. Um, and so I think we might, in, the, in this new climate that's much different than 50s America, we might have to have this big conversation about why are our icons of racial justice like white people hmm. and I think that might be coming in the future so I keep thinking about the character of Calpurnia in the novel and sort of what she says about sort of the other side of race in that family's life yeah I think um, and I'm wondering which characters are going to return it's it sounds a little bit like it's going to be a even though it was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, it sounds like we're going to meet some of the characters again, older and later. And I think some of what is said in To Kill a Mockingbird that's like a little bit beneath the surface is going to bubble up and the characters are going to have to deal with the with all of that. So. I wonder, I mean, what's really interesting is that To Kill a Mockingbird has this place as like a perfect single novel. Mm -hmm. And if the, novel, the second novel isn't as good or isn't, you know, as well received, will, will that throw some sort of shadow on the first book? Um, because it's almost like a one-hit wonder, and that's a you know, that may be a trite way of putting it, but it's sort of um, that's kind of that's kind of the place in our in our society, and so there's a real risk. Um, that's that's going to be very fascinating to see how that plays out. My big hope is that is that. Uh, Harper Lee just knows that it's just so good and is like Same. wants to put it out because she just wants to sign, you know, like because yeah. we all have this suspicion and hopefully she just wants to put it out and be like check check this out, you know, it's amazing, <laughs> like that would be great. I think. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting that the great literary event of the century is ultimately an old book and a sequel. Um, and I guess that brings us on to the next thing we were going to talk about, which is the state of the film industry. Um, obviously, there was distressing news for well, for writers and for film fans this week with the the sudden demise of the Dissolve, which was Pitchfork's film site. And you know, I think we were as shocked as anyone to to see that posted on just saying, you know, goodbye, we're done. And you know, Judy, I think you had some some things to say about this. That you know, the state of film writing very much reflects the state of the film industry. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very hard to find these days uh, an audience for film writing that isn't about blockbusters and franchises and things that have sort of a fan component to them. Mm. We have a history of great film criticism. It probably peaked around the same time the American film industry peaked Mm. in the 70s. But there's so much great film writing going on now, um, and it's sort of, you know, shunted to small magazines, and, you know, to a certain extent, it takes place in more general interest publications. But I think what made the Dissolve unique, and I should disclose here that I have contributed to it, um, but anyway, what I think made it unique was that it was a publication that took film seriously and didn't make the, it this sort of like infantilizing kind of you know fanboy yeah. kind of you know franchise promoting arm of um, of film promotion yeah I think that's true I mean I think I, I used to do a little bit of film writing and a few years ago and I think but I think it one thing I like about the dissolve too is that it the fanboy thing I think works on both sides like the really cinephile side can be really weirdly fanboyish about certain things and then obviously the kind of franchise rah-rah Hollywood kind mm. of side and it, it never really did and it, it, it cut a nice path between those and it's yeah it's sad I mean it's just sad to see it go and but uh, you know I guess one thing about that is like maybe well it's like an opportunity for new other kinds of film criticism to come up even though it's hard to make any money doing that mm. um, you know so we'll see what happens I guess and honestly the money that is to be made is is made through you know, junket mm. journalism I'm, I'm doing the inverted commas with my fingers here because yeah you know, I've done that a few times you know maybe sometime I'll write about it but it's you know it's it's a long way from actual journalism. It's just you know the star sitting there with six people and you know making sure the journalists get the quotes they need and then wheeling them out and wheeling the next star in. And it's a strange business. And when we lose things like the dissolve, we lose the the kind of flip side to that. And if that's all we're left with, then that is a distressing state of affairs. I was just thinking about Jeb Bush <laughs> saying that <laughs> the Americans need to work more and work longer hours. And wondering if, which he did say this week, apparently. He did, he did indeed. And it made me How think. How many hours a week is Jeff Bush working? It's an excellent question. I mean, he's been on the golf course with the other Bushes very yes. recently. <laughs> How many days has yeah. Jeb Bush worked in his life? Yeah. Um, but, it, but, you know, the whole the issue of like long form criticism and even like uh, more difficult films um, is, is partly a time issue, I think. And yeah. people are really for time and you know going to enjoy like two and a half hour independent cinema is something that you can't do if you don't have time mm. and you're going to go see a spider-man instead mm. 
um, if that's you know your only your only few hours to go to the movies, and so I just, I have to bring it back to capitalism <laughs> and say that capitalism you know there's got that's got to be an element to what's happening here. Yeah, it does seem like fewer like fewer adventurous movies are being made, which I guess. Mm. Yeah, although I mean I think there are plenty of reasons why we should be having a more robust online conversation about film now. I think for for those of us who live in major cities where there are a huge number of film options all the time and there always have been, that's sort of an experience that hasn't changed. But mm. I think the advent of streaming and on demand and um, you know, releasing independent films on demand even before they come to the theaters. All of these things are giving people who didn't used to have access to independent and foreign and underground film a, a way to access it at the same time as everyone else. Um, and that means, you know, more people should be interested in movies that aren't just the most popular thing at the multiplex. Hmm. And in that respect too, film criticism still has utility. Like you can argue that the, the concept of a record review is pretty much redundant in this day and age. Like, you know, it, it's not like you have to wait for it to be released. It's probably leaked. You can just listen to it yourself, etc. Whereas, you know, sitting down and watching a film is still an investment of time. And if there are more choices than ever, then, you know, having someone who you, whose opinion you trust or respect saying, hey, this is good, you should watch this, this is terrible, you should skip it. Like, that, that is still something that, that is useful and should exist and, sh you know, should be read. I think this is another problem, too, with film criticism now um, that the Dissolve really helped with was that it was a platform for younger critics to write serious criticism. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, rather than... Lists. Yeah, lists or news or... Um, or whatever, there wasn't a sort of caste system within the publication about who got to write a review or who, you know, everyone was a critic and everyone was a reporter. There are very few staff film critic positions. There are very few top-tier film critics. Most of them, I think, are in their 50s and 60s and even older now. Um, and that's a real problem when you think about like who most movies are for, who the audiences are, um, you know, who has the best grasp of what's going on in the culture right now. Like we're getting to a point where the majority of film critics are going to be more and more divorced from what's happening in the culture at large. Well, we've <coughs> just about got to the point where we need to wrap up, but before we do, um, we are going to have the first of what will be a regular segment. Is it feminist with Sarah Seltzer? Is it feminist? <laughs> uh, this week we are addressing Ariane Grande's donut licking incident, which is sadly not a euphemism. Sarah, Ariane Grande, licking donuts, is it feminist? I'm going to say yes. Um, she's a young pop star. She's in charge of her, her body and her, her image. If she wants to lift donuts, then, you know, that may be empowering for her. But mostly, what's mostly feminist about it was the anti-nationalism that she expressed um, during the donut licking incident, where she said, I hate America and Americans. I mean, the state is the patriarchy. Let's face it, guys. She, you know, that's a sophisticated critique. 
a lot of a lot of pop feminists might not reach that level of sophistication. They might just say, you know, well, I don't like you know stuff that's bad for body image and you know all that stuff. But she she just saw the source of the you know the source of the problem is state power. <laughs> so I'm gonna say Absolutely. I'm gonna say very feminist, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next when she next goes into a pastry shop. <laughs> I think she started to work her way leftward from Gloria Steinem. <laughs> <laughs> the bell hook stage for growing social consciousness. This is excellent, but I will not be eating any donuts off the shelf if uh, Ariana has been there first. Fair I think, I think the, the thing that we're not talking about here, the conversation that needs to happen, is that she was in the donut shop while she was making fun of the donut shop. <laughs> Isn't that just like a perfect metaphor for... <laughs> like the hold that that capitalism has on all of us like you know we hate the donut shop but we're there yeah, we're still there she was yeah, unlicking it she was like consuming the thing that she was criti- critiquing really because then later uh, in, in her apology um she made it all about childhood obesity and why you know not eating the donut but but her her fight against donuts was one of of consuming so that's very interesting As 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 a foreigner, I found it kind of perversely fascinating that um, we have two things here: we have donut licking and replacing them on a shelf for some other poor sap to eat, and we have a throwaway mark remark: "I hate America," and everybody got upset about "I hate America." No one seemed to care about the donuts. I don't think the donut would have even been news if she hadn't said she hated America. It could still be sitting there. I. I that think, is pretty normal oh. American behavior. <laughs> that's, that's the interesting thing about it. It seems that it was a very American thing to do. I mean, you think of who who's going into donut shops and licking donuts. Yeah. It's bored American teenagers. <laughs> that's yeah. who's doing it. Yeah, it's very American. It's it's like this uh, sort of mundane activism of going. You know, it's just doing a very very regular activity um, that, but. Perhaps knowing that there was a surveillance camera and knowing that she was Ariana Grande. It's very James Dean, you know. Yeah. Rebel without a cause. Rebel without a cause. I mean, is there anyone here who did not behave poorly in a in a chain store of some sort <laughs> as, as a young person? No. McDonald's was definitely the source of my and my friend's worst behavior. I have been ejected from McDonald's on multiple occasions. I once. That's fascinating. <laughs> I had a bad night at Walmart, like sometime around like, the year two thousand. Yeah, I think Mall Abercrombie's were my side of <laughs> Fascinating. I once took a pack of gum from my grandmother's store, and then for the next for the next four hours felt really awful about it. It was me and my cousin. We, it was like this collusion between the two of us. And then we were talking about it, and like you know, I think we were probably ten at the time, and we we're like, "Are we gonna get sent to juvie?" And then after a while, decided that we thought like our grandmother was just like being withholding and knew all about it the whole time because she had seen it on the surveillance cameras at the store. Um, seen, you know, I, th- I think it was cinnamon. Um, you know, so the spiciness, there's even like, some, you know, it makes it all, the stakes are so much higher. Um, and then we ended up, we ended up confessing. Uh, and I am here today, and I didn't go to juvie. <laughs> not not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Stealing from grandma. From grandma. <laughs> But it's very American. Yes. The process of sinning and being publicly right. and involved. dismissing family. Mm-hmm. Terrible. It's like John Edwards right there. Well, on that note, thank you for listening to the, the inaugural Flavor Wire podcast. We will be casting the pod every couple of weeks. Um, 
and they will probably be about as coherent as this one has been. Um, We have enjoyed doing this. We hope you've enjoyed listening. We will see you again in another couple of weeks. Thank you.